This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is Randy Zuckerberg Means Business on Business Radio. Hi, everyone. Randy Zuckerberg here. Welcome to my favorite hour of the week where I get to speak with some of the most fascinating and incredible people in business. You're listening to Randy Zuckerberg Means Business here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio. And uh, it feels like we're on day 600 of this crazy pandemic and, and lockdown. Two of the biggest themes that I've been thinking about and that guests have been speaking about on this show are resiliency and humor. The importance of rethinking aspects of your life on the fly, of being able to pivot, um, all of those traits that you think great entrepreneurs have, we've all had to apply them in our daily lives. And humor Humor is is such a, a big part of everything that we're doing. So I'm excited in the show today. I want to preview for you, for you a little bit. We have very soon, we're going to have Adam Grant on. He is the best-selling author of four books now. He just came out with his new book, Think Again, about mental resiliency and how sometimes intelligence is really admitting what you don't know and rethinking things. We're going to have him in just a moment. We're going to start the show off with our tech of tomorrow. Tech of tomorrow. All right. Um, First of all, Adam is the author of Give and Take, Originals, Option B, and Now Think Again. Um, He starts off the book with a really great anecdote about a group of elite firefighters that are uh, dropped into just one of these raging bushfires and um, how the, the, the chief makes a really weird judgment call in the moment. He kind of pivots and makes a call. Um, and the other firefighters don't really believe him. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting and a bit tragic and it really outlines a lot of, uh, what's going on here. Um, but, uh, so I'm excited to have Adam on the line. One thing that a lot of people don't know is that Adam and I were actually, uh, classmates, in college, um, we were both psychology majors uh, at Harvard together, and uh, clearly Adam went on to do a lot more with the major than I did because he actually became a, a professional organizational psychologist. But uh, it was fun to be in a lot of classes together and to to follow his his truly meteoric rise. Uh, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Randy. Sorry for the delay. Great to be here. <laughs> No, no worries. It was great because you know what? It it really forced me to like get in the mindset of your book. I had to kind of think again and draw on my own skills about how I could talk to myself for a few minutes. And so you, it, it really tested my own mental uh, acuity here. But um, uh, Adam, I've already been bragging about you and I already shared... Um, Uh, with all of our listeners that you and I were classmates and that we actually studied psychology together and that you clearly made a lot more of the degree than I did. But uh, it's uh, that was so fun. Maybe maybe you can reminisce for a little bit about um, what was it about some of those early psych classes that actually steered you to go into the field? Oh, I have such fond memories of all the psych classes we took together. I think one of the defining moments for me was uh, was when Richard Hackman taught an organizational psychology course, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my career. 
And he, he told these stories about how he didn't know what he wanted to do either. So he made it his job to study all the jobs that he thought might be interesting. And I thought, oh, well, I can do that. I, I would love to go and study astronauts and filmmakers and basketball players. And now that's my job. So I guess my job is to study other people's jobs and also to try to rethink how to make them more meaningful and motivating, which is a complete blast. And I guess the other thing is we shared a thesis advisor, Brian Little, who just brought personality to life in the most thought-provoking and surprising ways. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And I, we actually had Brian Little on this show pretty recently. And I mean, what what an amazing teacher and an inspiring person. So, Adam, I mean, congrats on your book. I have read it from cover to cover as no surprise, like all of your other books. It's fantastic. Um, before we dive into it, maybe you can talk a little bit about what the past year has been like for you. Well, I think 2020, Randy, was the year where I was forced to rethink a lot of things that I didn't want to question. Uh, I think like all of us, right? it never would have even occurred to me to ask, well, is it safe to eat indoors in a restaurant? Can, how can I ever give someone a hug if they're not in my bubble? Uh, can I possibly get anything done while all three of our kids are at home doing school on Zoom? And so a big part of this year is just questioning for me a lot of my day-to-day routines and habits. And one of the things I've discovered is I don't actually need to leave the house a whole lot. <laughs> I, miss, I miss being on stage with a live audience. But almost every other part of my job is is pretty easy to do from home. And so in that sense, I feel like I've been extremely lucky. How about you? Oh, thanks for asking. You know, it's same too. I couldn't imagine. I was like, how am I going to do this radio show from my home? And we actually picked up and moved across the country for the year. Um, but it does, it really does show you how resilient we all are, especially children. Um, it, it's been incredible to watch them. And act, and like you said, how much can actually be done through screens if you're just willing to rethink a little bit of, of how you do things. So I want to dive into your book. It's amazing. Um, and and so timely. I mean, did you did you start writing it before the pandemic? Because so much of it, it really addresses what we're going through right now. I, I started working on it in 2018, having no idea how much rethinking we're all going to be doing. Uh, but there were you know there were a bunch of experiences that, that solidified to me that just too many people get locked into opinions, beliefs, decisions that no longer make sense. And one of the more frustrating experiences I had, Randy, was uh, going to a bunch of uh, a bunch of CEOs and founders in 2018 and saying, hey, I want to try a remote Friday experiment. Let's just take one day a week. People can work from anywhere, and we can figure out what the productivity and creativity effects might be. And all of them turned me down. They said, oh. no, we don't want to open Pandora's box. We might never be able to close it again. People might never come back to work. They might procrastinate all the time. Our culture could fall apart not worth the risk. And hilariously, several of the CEOs have now announced that their companies might be permanently remote. And I just look at that and think, that is two years of this learning opportunity, right? Where you could have been running this experiment, trying to figure out how to make it effective for, you know, for getting things done, for collaborating. And I, I think that I would love to see more people looking forward and asking, okay, what are some of the other practices that I haven't been pushed to rethink yet? but I ought to be questioning. 
Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I've just been rethinking uh, in my, in our own life is education, because I think it's very clear that we rely on schools for way too much. We rely on them for education, socialization, babysitting. And when those fall apart, everything falls apart. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just curious, you know, some of your thoughts on, you mentioned you have your kids learning virtually and, um, I wonder if we had been a little less scared and fearful of kids and screen time, maybe we would have been a little more prepared for all of this. I, I think so. I think it's, that's frankly, the, the school time conversation has always surprised me because we had the same debate when we were kids. <laughs> there was a whole article written about our local, in our local newspaper about how I was addicted to Nintendo. And that was supposed to be a huge screen time problem. And I actually think some of the most valuable skills that I learned in life came from playing Nintendo. Like the, the focus and concentration, uh, the grit to, to not quit a game until I've mastered it. And I think that not all screens are created equal. I think obviously we should be encouraging active engagement rather than passive engagement. But that's exactly what online learning does. And I think that you're right that, you know, not, especially as kids get older, not every class needs to be done synchronously. Not every lesson needs to be taught in the same physical room. And in the same way that you know, there's some great classes taught on Coursera that millions of people can access from anywhere, I wonder if it's possible to you know to identify some of the best teachers in a country and you know, give give every student the chance to learn from them in you know in a, a slightly less synchronous way. And I, I don't know whether that experiment works or not, but it seems like something we should be exploring, doesn't it? Absolutely, because like you said, now all these companies are going remote. You could work for any company from anywhere. Why can't you go to any school in the country from anywhere? This seems like a you know, like the title of your book, a, a time to kind of think again about all of these huge institutions. I think so too. And one of one of the the interesting things it's done for me is as a teacher, in part, is I've I've gotten to reimagine my classroom a little bit. So I had to, you know, starting in August, I, I was teaching MBA students and undergrads online completely. I never taught virtually before. Um, one of the things I decided right off the bat was we were going to make pretty active use of the chat window in Zoom. Uh, I, I said, okay, I want to, you know, I want to make sure that, that we have interactive participation. It's harder to pull off when, when we're virtual. So we'll use hashtags. Uh, let's have, if you have a question, put in hashtag question, type in your question, I'll call on you. If, I don't think we have enough debate in the classroom. I want you to disagree with me and challenge your peers. If you see something that you disagree with, put debate in and tell us what your perspective is, and I'll bring you in. If you have an aha moment, <laughs> tell us what your insight was so that I can track whether you know, you're actually learning what I'm hoping to be teaching. And I will tell you, Randy, I had the deepest conversations I've ever had in the classroom because what, what I didn't realize was I've spent my whole career just calling on whatever random hands happened to be raised. And with the chat window, I can choreograph a little bit and say, like, instead of instead of bringing in the person who has a tangential comment right now, I'm actually going to bring in two voices that you know that pretty strongly disagree with each other and see if we can actually learn something from this debate. And I want to bring that back into the physical classroom. I don't know how it's going to work yet, but I think that was a great silver lining for me. It is so interesting. I also think, you know, one thing that I've seen is that when you're in a room, there's always some people who take up a lot of space in the room. They're, you know, they're the first to raise their hand. They want to be heard. And and some of this, these remote features actually, um, you know, make a level playing field for people who maybe are a little quieter in the room but have a lot to say. So I I, I think there's, there's so much to learn. For anyone just joining us, I'm speaking with Adam Grant, organizational psychologist, best-selling author of the new book, 
think again, the power of knowing what you don't know. So Adam, we're all in this crazy year. We're rethinking everything, where, where we live, where our kids go to school, where, you know, what job do we work for? Um, what are some tips that you would give people as we're kind of rethinking our lives about how, how to go through this process the right way? Well, I think the, the first thing to recognize is that rethinking doesn't have to mean you change your mind. And it just means being open to reconsidering. And I think a lot of people shy away from it because they're afraid, oh, no, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, do all this rethinking, and realize I'm in the wrong career, married to the wrong person, <laughs> living in the wrong country. And you know, the, the thought is you know, just to, to be a little bit more flexible in our thinking. And, and one, one way I've thought about this concretely is uh, I have you know, students who, who end up with these just intense regrets where they, they take a first job and they're working at a bank or a consulting firm, and then they want to climb the ladder and be successful, and they get kind of seduced by status. And 10 years go by, and suddenly they wake up one morning and realize I've wasted a decade of my career, and it's too late to move, and I don't want to have to hit the reset button. And so my advice to them, and I think this applies to all of us right now, is to say, just like you go to the doctor or the dentist when nothing's wrong, to have a checkup once or twice a year, we ought to do the same things with our careers, with our romantic relationships, uh, with some of our big choices. And you know, from a career standpoint, I think a checkup is about asking, you know, have I reached a learning plateau or a lifestyle plateau? Am I in a position where I might, you know, I might have changed my mind about what my interests and values are or what strengths I want to be using? I think from a relationship perspective, it's more about saying, look, I'm, I'm obviously not exactly the same person I was when we met. Neither are you. Let's take a moment to pause and ask, what are some habits that we've fallen into and in the way we interact that we might want to rethink? And I think having that conversation a couple times a year is a great way to give your partner space to grow. I love that. And I mean, so you're talking about having those conversations with yourself, maybe with a close loved one. How do you have those conversations encouraging other people to be open-minded? And I'm particularly interested of, with a dialogue that you just had with the world's leading vaccine whisperer. Obviously, vaccines are on the forefront of everyone's mind, and uh, it's really important right now to, to open people's minds about vaccines in a new way. So how, how, do, you, how do you get other people to think again? I'm not going to pretend it's easy. And I think the more extreme and more entrenched some of these beliefs are, the more it's an uphill battle. But I, I do think the instincts we have are, are often backwards. So the mistake I've made over and over, Randy, is I've gone into preacher and prosecutor mode. I'm right and you're wrong. And that just leads the other person to get defensive or go on the attack. And so there's this incredible vaccine whisperer that you mentioned, Arnaud Gagne. Uh, he's a pediatrician uh, in Canada. And what he does is he uses this technique called motivational interviewing, where he recognizes, I can't force somebody to change their mind. What I can do is help them find their own reasons to change. And so he actually interviews people to try to understand what are their hesitations, what are the circumstances where they might consider vaccinating, and everybody can come up with one, right? People will say things like, well, you know, if, there were, if I were in the middle of a malaria outbreak and, you know, it had a close to 100% fatality rate, I take my chances on a vaccine and roll the dice if there was one available. And so by, by trying to understand when people would consider changing, then he can elaborate on that and say, okay, so it sounds like you do a cost-benefit analysis. What do you know about the cost-benefit analysis of COVID? And then the hope is that, that people will begin you know, where, where it makes sense, obviously, to talk themselves into change. And I think that's just a fundamental lesson of persuasion. 
that the person, when you make a persuasive argument, the person you're most likely to convince is yourself. And so we all need to do a little bit more inquiring and listening and a little bit less uh, telling and answering. For sure. And especially, uh, you know, when I look at, at a lot of uh, social media around the, the recent election and everything, um, it does seem like there's, you know, just a lot of just screaming at one another about things. So for sure, I think uh, that's something that's really important. I want to shift a little bit to, to work and talking about the future of work. Um, at the start of the interview, you were telling a great story about how you're encouraging companies to try to take one day remote and they were pushing back. I mean, what, what do you think the ideal work week looks like now that we've experienced kind of the all the way out, off the deep end here? I think in an ideal world, we're probably, for most people, you know, obviously this is going to be different if you're in a manufacturing job where you can't do your work if you're not on site. But for people who do have flexibility, so a lot of knowledge work, service work, I think we're probably going to see most organizations move to three days in the office, two days virtual if you live near you know, a major headquarters or you know, a major satellite. Um, and then probably much more flexible for people who don't. And we've, we've had data pre-pandemic showing that as long as people are physically together for about half the week, uh, people are more productive, they're more satisfied, and there's no real cost to relationships or collaboration. And I think the, the big open question is, how do we coordinate that with people who are working from anywhere? And I think the, the answer might be intensity, not consistency. You do not have to interact with someone every day in order to trust them. What you need is a first week where you do a deep dive getting to know them and, and collaborate closely. And so I think we're going to start to see retreat-style team building. And then a lot of people sort of dividing and conquering from there. Mm, I love that. Yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is the fact that uh, this, when everyone's remote, it levels the playing field a bit. So you're not missing out on kind of the, the, you know, the chat that happens before and after meetings. But how do you keep that when, when the hybrid does go back, that there isn't like the people who are forgotten because they're remote? I think that's a big risk. There was a, a great experiment that Nick Bloom led, also pre-pandemic, uh, at C-Trip, where people were randomly assigned to work from home at a call center, and they were 13.5% more productive. They were half as likely to quit over the next six to nine months. But despite being more productive from home, those people were less likely to get promoted because they didn't have face time with senior leaders. And so I think we're going to have to be much more serious about, about really measuring contributions, results, performance as opposed to just saying, well, I'm going to promote the people who I see a lot, which is something too many organizations have done for too many years. Hmm, for sure. Uh, if For anyone who's just joining us, you're listening to Randy Zuckerberg Means Business here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio. I'm your host, Randy Zuckerberg. I'm thrilled to be chatting with Adam Grant, best-selling author of the new book, Think Again, an organizational psychologist. So Adam, you talk a lot about being wrong and kind of embracing the joy of being wrong. I'd love to hear what this means and, and how it applies in our business lives. It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? <laughs> it does a little bit because I think we, we've been so conditioned, especially as leaders, to like be right and be confident. <laughs> yeah, I th and I think that's part of the problem because it means that we fall into this trap that, that often gets called escalation of commitment to a losing course of action where I make an initial decision or an investment. I get some negative feedback and I find out maybe this was not such a good idea, but I have some costs. And I also don't want to admit to myself and everyone else that I made a stupid decision. 
And so I double down and I invest more time, more energy, more resources. And then the cost of failure only goes up. And I think that what I would say to leaders in particular, this this applies to anyone, is that it's more important to be right than to feel right. And that the faster you can admit you're wrong, the faster you can learn and then change your mind. And I think that I had a great conversation with Danny Kahneman about this. So Danny obviously won a Nobel Prize in economics for his work on the psychology of judgment and decision-making. And Danny is the least attached to his ideas of anyone I know. He's actually excited. He lights up when he finds out that one of his hypotheses was incorrect. And I asked him why. And he said, well, discovering I was wrong is the only way I know I learned something. And I thought that was such a, an interesting distinction. But let's be clear, Randy. Nobody enjoys being wrong, but having been wrong is a moment of discovery, and that means probably we're positioned to make some progress. Absolutely. It's funny because reading your book, I mean, you talked about kind of the BlackBerry, the rise and fall of the BlackBerry device and, and the transition to iPhone. I mean, I sat in Silicon Valley and lived through the iPhone coming out and lived through, um, you know, all of our businesses needing to completely change overnight. Uh, I'm just, you know, I, I'm curious being kind of being on the other side and telling that story. Um, you know, what was it that you think that about that story that really uh, is a takeaway that all of us can learn for our businesses? I think that, I mean, the, the big mistake that Mike Lazzarini's and his colleagues made was they were unwilling to rethink the very things that had made them great. So, you know, obviously the BlackBerry took off in part because it had this great keyboard that you could type on the go with, and it made it much more efficient to send emails at work. And they got so attached to that, so invested in it, that they just could not process. What, who would want a touchscreen? Why would you want apps for home entertainment? This is all about work. Uh, and I think the, the I guess the, the main lesson I took away from that is it's, it's easy to rethink other people's assumptions. It's a lot harder to second-guess your own. And if you're, if you're in a position where your product is dominant, that is the time when you're most likely to be complacent, and that's the moment when you have the most freedom to do all your rethinking. So don't wait until your company is falling apart before you start to question some of those assumptions. Mm, I, I love that. And I, you know, I think about that a lot because I, I hear, oh my gosh, all day. I can't tell you how many times I'm on conversations where people say when it goes back to normal, but life doesn't, will never exist. Normal doesn't want to come back to us and, and, and life, you know, is going to be some hybrid moving forward. So I'm curious, you know, what, what do you think the world looks like six, 12 months from now, and, and what are the big things we should be thinking again about right now? Well, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't, I don't have a good read on that. But I, I think there's a way of thinking about that that's different from what most of us do by instinct. Um, you, as you know, one of my favorite groups to learn from while I was writing Think Again was super forecasters, these people who compete in tournaments to try to predict world events, like who's going to win the next presidential election or who's going to win the next World Cup. And it turns out that what most people do when they're trying to make predictions is they envision a future state of the world, and then they plan accordingly. What the super forecasters do differently, the very best forecasters, is they imagine seven or eight possible states of the world. And then they start to plan for the strategies or the decisions that are most likely to succeed across all of those. And so I think one thing we're probably doing is a lot of us are experiencing tunnel vision. So 
I've seen this a lot with CEOs who say, okay, future is remote. We're all in on remote work. Well, that's one scenario, but we also know a lot of people want to come back to the office. And so let's talk about you know, how your plans are, might change if you discover you were wrong about that. And so I think a, a little bit of scenario planning there is, is probably something we should all commit to. Absolutely. Adam, where can we uh, check out your book, follow all of your writing? And, and also, I, um, I think I saw on Instagram that your daughter helped design the book cover, if, I, if I'm not incorrect on that, which is so awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was such a highlight for me. Uh, Joanna was, I was talking to her about what, what the cover should look like. We want something that's going to make people think again. And she said, well, what if, what if you had a candle or a match with water instead of fire? Yes, we love it. Uh, well, it, so I guess the, the place to find me is adamgrant.net. You can take a quiz there, uh, just five minutes to figure out uh, your style of rethinking. And uh, I would say other than that, that I'm really hoping that this year people are much more proactive in their rethinking instead of just waiting for the next event that forces us to question ourselves. Mm, I, I think that's wonderful advice. I know so many of us have been doing some real deep soul searching this year in our personal lives and our work lives. Adam Grant, it's always, it's such a pleasure to speak with you and reconnect. Congratulations on all your success. It's been so fun to, to follow you from a classroom together in college to just your meteoric success as a, as a leader and an author. So thanks for so much for joining us here. Thank you, Randy. And thank you for your kind words. I will try to earn it. Wonderful. Everyone, definitely check out Think Again by Adam Grant, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. You're listening to Randy Zuckerberg Means Business here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 